All right, let me see that I get this going right. So yes, recording, good. So uh, welcome to all of you, first of all. And I think everyone knows me and I know pretty much everyone, but just in case, I am Karine Mogg, the director of the Meter Center. I'm delighted to welcome all of you here today. This is the final presentation in our series of presentations from our summer visiting scholars for this year. Our presenter today is well known too many of us as a scholar of the French Reformation in particular. Dr. Martin Clauber obtained his PhD from the University of Madison, Wisconsin-Madison in 1987 under the supervision of the late Professor Robert Kingdon. His publications include numerous articles and book chapters and edited volumes, including most recently, The Theology of the French Reformed Churches from Henry IV to the Revocation of the Edict of Nantes. And this book was published by Reformation Heritage Books in 2014. And he is currently working on a companion volume, The Theology of the French Reformed Churches from the Revocation of the Edict of Nantes to the Edict of Toleration. So that's the sort of the next piece of that project. Martin is currently an affiliate professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He received our Imo van Helsema Fellowship for pastors in the Reformed tradition in 2019. He began his fellowship in 2019 with two weeks of study at the Meter Center and was obviously supposed to come back last summer, 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, and that did not happen. So he deferred, like everyone else, to 2021. So he's now completing his research period with us. And we have been delighted, Martin, to have you with us for these weeks. His presentation for us today is titled Pierre Alix, 1641 to 1717, pastor at Charenton, preparation for the Lord's Supper. Martin. Thank you. Um, it's been a great uh, privilege to be here. Um, uh, the project I'm working on now is on the theology of the French Reformed Church in Charenton. Um, and I'm taking a look at not every pastor who pastored under the Edict of Nantes, but many of them. And there's going to be a chapter on each one. Um, this particular chapter is on one of the last pastors, Pierre Elix. And I got interested in him through reading uh, some material from Philip Benedict, which I found very interesting. Uh, most of the stuff I do on these theologians tends to be some of their polemics, some of their uh, more extensive theological treatises. But uh, this time I decided to look at uh, some of the devotional pieces that they would write, uh, which actually seems to be more in keeping with what their everyday life was like as pastors in terms of their, their shepherding of the congregation. So I'm just gonna start reading this and then we can stop for questions at the end. Uh, Pierre Alix, 1641 to 1717, a pastor in Charenton, the prestigious and massive Huguenot temple outside of Paris, um, was pastor there 1670 to 1685, originally from Alençon, France, France, where his father, Jean Alix, had been a reformed pastor. He studied at the academies of Saumur and Sedan before accepting a pastoral call in Champagne and then near Rouen and then finally at Charenton uh, to replace the famed Jean Daillet, who had died earlier in the year. Like his colleagues at Charenton, Alix engaged in theological polemics in defense of the Reformed faith, and in particular responding to the critiques of Basuet. As a gifted Christian Hebraist, he debated scholars at the Sorbonne and, and hosted them in his home. He also developed relationships with British scholars, especially those with an interest in the ancient Near East and the Old Testament. And at Charenton, he teamed with his colleague Jean-Claude to try to produce a new French Bible translation. The translation project never came to fruition because of disputes over Alix's association with uh, Claude Pejon for his support of a uh, fellow pastor in Paris, Charles Le Sen, who was suspected of Socinianism and Arminianism, um, also being suspected of being a follower of Pejon, who taught against the immediate role of the Holy Spirit on the individual's soul in the process of salvation. After the revocation, Alix relocated to London 
where he spent the rest of his career pastoring the French refugee church there. Um, I'm obviously focusing on his ministry in France rather than his ministry of England, but it was a long ministry in England, um, uh, but I'm not going into that. He was somewhat of a controversial figure at Charenton, even though he enjoyed a relatively long ministry, 15 years there. There was some conflict between Alix and his colleague Jean-Claude over this whole Cajon controversy. But this paper will focus on one of the works of Alix entitled The Preparation for the Lord's Supper. This was not one of his major treatises, but was rather a short devotional work designed to assist his parishioners in preparing for communion. It was significant, however, as part of a genre of reform manuals related to acts of personal piety and devotion. According to Philip Benedict, Huguenot leaders during the 17th century published a host of devotional books on a number of topics, including those designed to help prepare believers to partake of the Lord's Supper. The popularity of such literature seems to run counter to John Locke's observation during his 1670s visits to France that there is very little piety or religion among their people and that the lives of the Reformed was no better than that of the Papists. Calvin himself had declared in his uh, Petit Traité de la Saint-Seine, uh, 1541, that it was not a minor fault to take communion in an inconsiderate manner without being well prepared. Furthermore, since Roman Catholics had developed their own manuals of piety, uh, such as Francois de Sales' Introduction à la vie dévote, 1609, it was important for French Protestants to do the same. Devotional topics among the French Protestants included general prayers, as well as prayers for, for specific occasions, such as sickness, enduring persecution, consolation, and repentance from sin. Uh, these works of piety were not limited to the French Reformed, as such books were common among the Lutheran, the English, and the Scots. And the idea of preparation for communion was also not limited to the French. In fact, there's an interesting connection between the Scottish Eucharistic services, which could last for several days and result in emotional responses, and then early American camp meetings, which started as protracted communion service, such as Cane Ridge in 1801, that morphed into the full-blown revivals of the Second Great Awakening. According to Francois Chevalier, reformed piety consisted of two different sides, individual and or family devotions um, or communal practice. Uh, the father of the family was supposed to gather the wife, children and servants if they had them to read the Bible, sing Psalms and preside over family devotions. Sometimes the father would read aloud <clears throat> one of the pastor's published sermons. Family and communal worship uh, were closely connected, and hence there was a strong market for devotional literature. Alix himself preached that the father had a responsibility to instruct his children on the precepts of the faith and was their docteur naturel. Marianne Carbonier Burkhardt notes <clears throat> there were just, that there was an explosion of these types of books, especially from 1650 to 1680. She includes the treatises on the Lord's Supper in the category of devotional works in general, um, which could focus on other topics such as how to prepare for death. She points that there were about 200 different titles and 500 different editions of these types of book, books. In the subcategory of Eucharistic books, she lists 18 different titles. After the revocation, the bottom fell out of the market and over a quarter of these general devotional works works are known only today through catalogs with no copies being extant. Another reason why many did not survive was they were very short, 50 to 100 pages, uh, and were printed very cheaply as small uh, as could be fit, in, fit into someone's pocket. However, they sold quite well. Benedict uh, points out that one bookseller, uh, Jean Nicolas of Grenoble, sold 17 copies of a book on the topic between 1550 and 1661. And Benedict was able to trace who bought these. These were all prominent members of the community, some buying several copies for distribution of relatives or household servants. Most of the authors were pastors and the pastors at Charenton served at the forefront of these efforts. 
Carbonier Burkhard estimates 52 Huguenot pastors compiled 120 of these devotional works under the Edict of Knox. And she divided the era into three periods. And I'm just looking at the Charenton pastors who published these types of things during these periods from 1610 to 1640. You have Pierre du Moulin, who was pastor from 1599 to 1621, and Samuel Durand, pastor from 1609 to 26. Then in the period 1640 to 55, other Charenton clergy, Michel Le Fasheur, pastor from 1637 to 57, Jean Maistreza, pastor from 1620 to 1669, Charles Drelincourt, pastor from 1620 to 69, Raymond Gache, pastor from 1654 to 1668. And finally, in the last period, 1655 to 1685, you have Jean-Claude, who was pastor from 1666 to 85, and Alix uh, also pitching in. So 18, so eight, I'm sorry, eight of the 19 pastors at Charenton during this time period wrote these treatises while 11 did not. So quite a good percentage. Um, some of the more popular works uh, included Dumoulin's Théophile ou de la mort de vin, which went through 20 editions, and this treatise Meditation pour se préparer le Saint-Saint, which went through 20 editions. Drelincourt wrote his Les Consolations de l'Anne Fidèle contre les Frères de la Mort, which went through 42 editions up through 1699, and then 15 additional ones in the 18th century. And then he also published Prière et Meditation pour se préparer à la communion, which was popular enough to go with at least four separate printings. Um, so the most important of these devotional works, according to Benedict, was entitled Le Voyage de Bethel, uh, published in 1665. Uh, especially for use by members of the Charenton Church and included selections by some of their pastors, Le Faucheur, Durand, Gache, and Dumoulin. The work went through 17 separate editions by 1685. And the content differed as the book was updated with works by other authors. For example, the sections by Le Faucheur and Durand were later replaced by works by the Genevan pastor and theologian Benedict Pictet and Drelincourt. Benedict includes a very helpful table in his article where he details the contents and different authors of the various edition. Uh, the volume is set as a kind of pilgrimage where one focuses on personal sin, contrition, repentance, and con consolation. And in essence, the trip to Charenton from Paris was a pilgrimage where most parishioners had to walk several miles to church and endure the ridicule and derision of the Roman Catholic neighbors along the way. The book includes prayers to be said at home before leaving church, prayers to be said on the road to the temple, prayers to be said just before entering the temple, while entering the temple, just after entering the temple, prayers for in between the singing of the Psalms, prayers to be said on the way to receive the elements while receiving them, after receiving them, uh, prayers of blessing for the pastors, prayers of thanksgiving while leaving the temple, prayers for giving alms, prayers for on the way back home, and then prayers while entering one's home. So lots of prayers. Uh, they also have a separate section in the book on prayers for fast days. Um, so since the work was a compilation of several devotional works, there were a greater variety of prayers available. And so one of the goals of the work was to intensify the importance and spiritual experience of participating in the Lord's Supper. Uh, these books also included what Benedict calls the tension, which existed between uh, coming to the Lord's table as worthy or unworthy communicants. The tension can be traced back to the biblical passage of 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul warns that unworthy communicants would be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. And then there's a specific command in the biblical passage for self-examination prior to partaking. So the whole process of weeding out the unworthy by the consistory and providing them their own 
a token required for entry to the people that were deemed worthy was supplemented by the intel intense self-examination detailed in these manuals. The Huguenot generally took the responsibility of preparation seriously. That does not mean that they were always fully or even adequately prepared. Isaac Casabon, the famous philologist, expressed his regrets in September of 1608 for not being ready. He wrote, I am filled today with my ordinary tasks, but I am troubled for not have, have, have taken the time for these studies of self-reflection, which leads to the salvation of the soul. Uh, I should have done so in light of the journey this morning, where I must, if it pleases God, participate in the Lord's Supper. Another member of the Charenton congregation, Philippe de Villiers, in March of 1657, attended a special service, which was customary the week, the week before the Eucharistic service to help prepare for it. He wrote that he then spent an entire day preparing at home by reading works of devotion. Some parishioners, such as Marguerite Mercier, rented lodging at Charenton starting on the Thursday before the Lord's Supper so she could focus on getting ready. Benedict goes on to divide these manuals of devotion or preparation for the Lord's Supper into three categories. The first he calls didactic. Uh, and there's a work by a pastor named Rousseau that fits in this category on preparation for the Lord's Supper, published in the 1550s. Since it was a relative, since it was relatively early in the life of the French Reformed churches, it would make sense that this would provide the basics for communion preparation, such as the need for faith, repentance, thanksgiving, um, any resentments being left um, before communing uh, would be all be included in this book. So this would be the first type of book, that didactic book. A second kind of manual Benedict calls meditative. The emphasis in here in these books was on prayers. Uh, written in the first person for each stage of the journey. Here, the communicant could make the suggested prayers their own. In this category, Benedict places the various tracts included in the Voyage de Bethel. The final category would be treatises of self-examination, which Benedict compares them to, which Benedict compares to Lutheran and Catholic works of confession and communion. Here he places Samuel Durand's Épreuve du Fidèle pour se préparer la Sainte Seine, where he compares the Christian life, and I find this interesting, to a briefcase of legal documents. One should examine all the contents to make sure that they had evidence of repentance and Christ's forgiveness for their sins. Durand then uses the language of an attorney prosecuting the case and demands the reader to examine if they'd experienced lust in their hearts or if they were hanging around the wrong kind of people, or if they were dressing with excessive vanity. Benedict characterizes Alix's book, Preparation for the Lord's Supper, as didactic. That is providing instructions and explanations for participation in communion. It went through three French editions and was later translated into English, but it could not compare to Le Voyage de Bethel in terms of popularity but it was still an important book. Um, the preparation uh, for the Lord's Supper by Elix contains an interesting comment in the beginning, uh, an endorsement by two reformed pastors, including Jean-Claude in August of 1682, when the work was first published. Uh, this was in accordance with the French discipline that required approval of any publication by a pastor, by a minimum of two pastors, or by the colloquy or by the provincial synod. So this has the imprimatur or the, the support of, of two pastors. Let's go into the contents of Elix's book. And there's some interesting things in here. Um, he starts out by arguing that there are three things necessary for successful communion. First, one has to be in a similar mindset that the Lord suggested to the apostles who attended the Last Supper. Second, one must feel deeply about the consolation that comes from our reflections on the truths that Christ sets before us. 
we must not simply fill ourselves with the idea of Christ being crucified. We must also gather the precious fruit, which comes to you to use from the death of Christ on the cross. Third, we should acknowledge our love and faithfulness toward God for all that he has done for us and that he has made himself known and that he loves us and shows us compassion. And our response should be to practice holiness that participation in the Holy Supper requires. Um, and then Elie starts uh, the main uh, section of the book, which, which he starts with a rendition of the biblical story of the Last Supper, as well as a detailed account of the Jewish Passover, thus highlighting the educational aspect of the treatise. He points out that Christ at the Last Supper, Supper was celebrating Passover. The sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb was a type of the sacrifice of Christ, as the Apostle Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 5. The Jews themselves believed that the Messiah would ultimately save them from their sins. On the same day, he delivered them from bondage in Egypt, quoting Exodus 12, 13. So Christ designed the memorial of the deliverance of mankind as a substitute for the deliverance of the Jews by the Paschal Lamb. The Lord's purpose, this is what I find interesting, was to remove the memory of the curse of Ham that was carried out in the execution of the firstborn of Egypt. So what had divided the nations in Egypt now unites them in Christ. The Paschal lamb, lamb was a sign of the condemnation of the Egyptians, but it was also a sign of blessing to the Hebrews. So the Lord's Supper would be a sign of blessing to the nations. And so he points out that one cannot fully appreciate the Lord's Supper if one does not understand the parallel to the Paschal lamb. So just as the Hebrews journeyed through the wilderness and later to the temple in Jerusalem, so Christians travel to their own temple to remember the wondrous deeds of God. At this point, he then returns again to the example of Ham, whose descendants he equated with the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Then he goes into a discussion of Abraham's attempted sacrifice of Isaac and the substitution of the ram in the thicket as an appropriate sacrifice. So Isaac, as the firstborn, was spared, while later all the firstborn of the Egyptians were destroyed. Another interesting comparison is that he talks about the rite of circumcision. He says the rite of circumcision was common among other people besides the Jews, including the Ishmaelites and the Edomites. So the Jews needed to have another symbol that they were alone as the chosen people of God. So this was the Passover where God ratified his covenant with his chosen people and then saved them from his wrath. Furthermore, the Passover demonstrated the Lord's love, faithfulness, and the keeping of his covenant promises, especially of the coming Messiah. The response of the people was to remain obedient to God's commandments and live a holy life in gratitude for his abundant blessings. Having provided the historical background, Alix then proceeds to describe what he called the principal truths of the Lord's Supper. First, the Lord's purpose was to establish a permanent memorial of his work on the cross. As Christ broke the bread, he explained its meaning that it represented his body, his, his broken body on the cross. As he poured the cup, he ex explained that it represented his death. So just as the Jews celebrated the Passover, reminding them to remember the great, great deeds of God. So the Eucharist reminds Christians to remember what Christ has done for us. The second truth is that Christ was indeed the Messiah promised in very specific Old Testament prophetic passages. And then he goes into detail on a bunch of those. Third, the passion of Christ is evidence that God's curse was placed upon him rather than upon believers who deserve to receive it. Fourth, Christ did not institute the ceremony until after he completed the Passover meal with his disciples, reminding them of the sacrifice of the ram instead of Isaac and the Paschal lamb instead of the firstborn of the Hebrews, and the testimony of John the Baptist, that Christ was a lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Furthermore, it is a symbol of the abrogation of the old covenant, whereby the people had to make sacrifices continually, and that the people were forbidden, forbidden to eat of the sacrifices made on their behalf. 
It also abolished the restriction of the people against partaking of blood. At least pointed out that Christ uh, instituted the sacrament before his crucifixion rather than after resurrection. Um, this made it easier for his followers to see the connection with what came before and provide a full understanding of the shame and punishment that he endured. The fifth truth would be the bloody means by which Christ was sacrificed, referring to Exodus 24, 8. Here Christ inaugurates a new covenant as expressed in Jeremiah 31. And then six, Christ commands us to celebrate the Eucharist until the second coming, which reminds us that he will come again to judge the world and complete the work of redemption. The next section of the treatise focuses on the comforts that the Lord's Supper conveys, citing 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, uh, about the prophets who didn't know all the details that were coming, um, uh, but believers, on the other hand, should rejoice because they have the full knowledge of the gospel and know fully what the prophets only knew in part. The second area of comfort is that Christians have a solid foundation with Christ upon which to build their faith. God has already demonstrated his faithfulness in the past, and Christians can depend on him as their hope for the future. Christ, as the great shepherd, feeds our souls with love, care, and compassion. The third comfort is that since the believer um, has been delivered from the curse that they rightly deserve, they can, find their, they can find rest for their souls along with peace and joy. The Eucharist here is like a public monument demonstrating that God has been thoroughly appeased and reconciled his people. The Lord's Supper calls the faithful to meditate on the love and wisdom of God, and at least here it compares the work of Christ. I thought this was interesting. To the uh, incident in Exodus 4, where the wife of Moses hastily circumcised her son so that the avenging angel would not strike Moses uh, before the Exodus. Uh, so the blood of Christ, like the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices, becomes the basis for the new covenant, which Elix compares to a kind of treaty with God. Formerly, Yahweh was a God of Abraham, but not of Lot, of Isaac, not of Ishmael, Jacob, but not of Esau. Now he is a God of all the nations based solely on Christ's shed blood on the cross. And so as his followers reflect upon the truth as displayed in the Lord's Supper, they should be filled with unspeakable joy. But hope is still for the future. Even though one's sins are forgiven, one still experiences the hardship and difficulties of life that are brought about by sins. Um, Christians hope for eternal life, but they still die like everyone else and therefore they wait the hope of the resurrection. So as believers have benefits, they also have responsibilities. First, they should not express indifference about attending, them, about attending the Eucharist. Since God himself has invited them to dine with him, who are they to shrug at it and neglect attendance? The Eucharist should be the convincing proof of one's faith, and the individual ratifies the promise given to them at their baptism. One should behave in a worthy fashion and not live as though the Christian faith were not true. Um, so since one has received the greatest of all possible gifts, how could a person refuse to be obedient and return the fruits of a holy life back to God? Next, in the Lord's Supper, the faithful recognize God's hatred of sin, his love for reconciled sinners. And when one contemplates the suffering that the Lord endured in his passion, one should not be so callous as to minimize its importance. So Alix does not include a lot of suggested prayers as some of these other works uh, did. So this highlights again that this was a more of an instructional manual uh, than for practice. But this being said, having concluded uh, his devotional tract, Alix provided suggested prayers for before and after communion. And I wanna read some of these, or just a couple of these, um, if I may. Um, but this is a prayer that you could pray uh, as you're approaching the communion table in your heart. Because you could say something like, my God, my Father, I have tested your mercy throughout the course of my life. Since you've given me a knowledge of the truth and have opened to me the treasure of riches, I feel a sense of shame. 
you have offered to me Jesus Christ and all of his blessings. Oh, God of my salvation, since you want me to obey the sweet invitations of your grace, which beckons me to your holy table, may I not do it to my condemnation, but for my salvation. In my self-examination, even though you have touched my heart with a need for serious repentance, and I sense how you've strengthened my faith and led me by the hand to your table as unworthy as I am, what a happy day that after I have confessed my sins, you have forgiven me by the sacrament of the new covenant. Gracious God, give to me the grace to announce the death of Christ my Savior, upon which this covenant is based, so that I may enjoy all its blessings. How great was your anger, how exact was your righteousness to erase my sins. You did not spare your only son, but delivered him to death for us. Since your righteousness is satisfied, there is no longer any obstacle to your mercy. No, Lord, they both assure me of your blessings. And this bounty is so admirable, since apart from your promises that you provided for me in your word, you desire that they enter my soul by tangible signs and seals of your love. You have shown them to me at your table, and by the efficacy of your grace in them, they carry in my heart confidence, joy, peace, and unspeakable consolation. By these heavenly invisible graces, you have given me assurance of my union with Christ and you, O oh my Father, and also with the Holy Spirit. Um, I do not fear the devil, since Christ has already won victory over him. I do not fear death, for today I am receiving the sacrament of eternal life. Uphold me, Lord, and increase the confidence that you inspire in me. Lift up my heart toward you and transport my desires and affections in all my earthly goods. May this communion, that may be the last one in my life, direct me to renounce the world and all of its vanities so that I may follow your word, which is the only rule of my life, the only subject of my meditations. By, my, by living my life in Christ, may I remain faithful until my last breath to be eternally happy in heaven. Amen. So I'm not going to read. There's another prayer that you could say afterwards, but it's, it's pretty much along the same lines as, as this prayer. So I, I thought this was an interesting tract um, to go through just, just to talk about what someone's experience might be like. Um, when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Are there any questions? Thank you so much, Marty. That's just great. And I'm so glad we got to hear that. Um, we'll open it up for questions. So since there's so few of us, you can go ahead and unmute and turn your cameras on and then we'll get to see everybody. Uh, I think we're over two pages, at least on my screen, but I'm sure we can manage this um, so I can see everyone. And then if you want to ask something, you can raise your hand and wave at me and that'll work out fine. I'll check. So if, if I miss you, just wait a minute, I'll come back to you. But I'd like to start out, if I can, Marty, by asking you, um, does this work, do any of the other works, the devotional works that you've seen, do they have dedicatory epistles? And if so, to whom are they de dedicated? In other words, yeah. is there a preface of dedication? Uh, this one uh, doesn't seem to have one. Um, most of them do have them, mm -hmm. the ones that I've seen. So I thought that was unusual. Although the English translation of it does have a dedication, but it's it's given by the translator, not by Pierre Leakes. But almost all of them seem to have a dedicate a dedicatory section to them. So I was a little and surprised. Any, any pattern famous people, famous people, um, prominent people um, uh, in, in the community, members of royal families, dukes of you know Protestant uh, areas in Germany. Um, you know, but t technically, I, I mean, definitely somebody who's who's a prominent figure, and maybe someone they had a, a connection with in some way. And are there dedications to women? Um, yes, I, I did see um, one work that had uh, dedications to two countesses. Mm -hmm. So it's not just to men. Well, that's a good question. I, I just think that would be an interesting avenue to explore in terms of the gendered audience for these works. Mm -hmm. Are they intended for women as well as men? Do they have any kind of hints in any way? You know, that's just kind of interesting to think about. Um, the article by uh, Carbonia Burkhardt, she has a whole section in it on the dedications. Mm -hmm. And she lists several of the people that are dedicated, including some of the women. 
-hmm. I would think that this would be purchased by the men mm -hmm. who would, um, you know, use it for their family devotions. Mm -hmm. So women would be involved that way, but unmarried women, <clears throat> I'm sure could use those or mm -hmm. members of the nobility that were female. Mm -hmm. surprise me. So yeah, I think that makes sense. Thank you. Other questions. Let me get to my gallery view so I can see everybody. Other questions. So we've got, hang on, Jeff, you start. Jeff, what? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Marty. I'm curious about, can you indicate that uh, Alix's treatise is more didactic um, in nature than, than say the, uh, those that emphasize more self-examination? But one thing that you see, if you look at the, uh, the consistory records is, uh, you know, people who are encouraged to reconcile with people they've been quarreling with uh, based on the belief that feeling, you know, hatred towards others was incompatible uh, with, uh, well, with, uh, with taking the supper. Uh, was there Anything like that? Uh, did you find anything like that in, in this particular treatise or is it more really strictly of a didactic nature? Yeah, there's not a lot on um, reconciling with your, your neighbor. <clears throat> Although that was a real problem in France. I mean, they, there's an article by Ray Menser I came across this week where some of the women were arguing over their seating at some of the reformed temples and it got quite nasty and sometimes it got violent uh, because they're technically you weren't supposed to be able to buy your seats but in some churches people could actually do that mm -hmm. most of the time you couldn't but if you sat in the same seat every week mm -hmm. and then someone sitting in your seat uh people didn't like it and mm -hmm. so that was some, something that was brought before a lot of the french consistories these, it's, it's a fascinating article by, and Menster, he, he, I must have read uh, half the stuff he's written in the last two weeks. I mean, he has got, he's done so much good work um, mm -hmm. that really, just like the stuff that you've, you've done in, in Geneva, Jeff, um, you know, what was life like for the average person? And well, you really see that in the consistory records and he's, he's, he's done, He's really open up because that's that's hard work, as you know. Uh, he's he's done a great service uh, to scholarship and and to the church, in my opinion, by doing that. So, yeah, there were a lot of fights, and the reason there were fights is because I think there were people, and just like we have those in our churches today. I, I'm on the elder board of my church, and I have to tell you that we have more fights over stupid things. And people storming out of the church for nothing. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh -huh. So we have a question, I think, from William. Do you want to go ahead? Bill Osterman in Oxford, Pennsylvania this time. Oh, another Oxford. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is surrounded by Amish and Mennonites. And what I have been impressed with is uh, how often the Drelincourt Meditations for Communion in their German translation show up in these immigrant prayer books that were carried over with the Lutherans and Reformed. Um, and still an 1812 English printing of it in Trent, from Trenton, New Jersey. So I, didn't, mean, I didn't know that. Lived on and on and on. Um, consolations for the sick, um, communion meditations. Um, it's a little, uh, Zurich and, and Baron both had these little Abendmahlbüchlis. And the first is drilling court, what to say before communion at the table, not quite as expansive as you had it, but uh, uh, he had a, he was translated and apparently widely read. His book on preparation for death was the best selling book he ever wrote. It had a wide, it was the book about preparing for death. Apparently. And that's, that's, that's the one that was printed in New Jersey in 1812. It was still, a hot topic. Mm -hmm. These things have a long history, as it were. Mm -hmm. All right, Christian, go ahead. Yeah, um, I have one comment and one question. Um, uh, one comment on the gender question. Um, I remember the the image of the Lord's Supper by uh, Frédéric Bernard, 
uh, in this famous book uh, published at the beginning in Amsterdam at the beginning of the 18th century, uh, you see a uh, reformed communion in Amsterdam, in fact, and among the people, there is one woman holding a book, and it's the only one. So I think it's, it can be a, a treaty to, for, for the preparation of the communion or the Bible, I don't know, but I mean, it's possible. So it's, uh, it could be a, an interesting information. And the question is on, on the length of these treatises. Um, you said they were very short. I noticed when I worked on this, on this, uh, on this literature that um, with the, the end of the 17th century, they get bigger. And mm -hmm. I have here the example of the communion des votes ou la manière de participer saintement et utilement à l'Eucharistie de Jean de la Placette, mm -hmm. which belongs to this uh, tradition. And it's more than 570 pages. <laughs> so my question is, uh, this literature could be popular at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody can read, I mean, everybody who can read can read a, a little book. But who reads those books of 500 pages to prepare to the communion? What year uh, was they written? I'm curious. What, what? year was it, what year was it written? I, I, I when was know. it written? Uh, at, at the um, it's um, uh, at, at the end of the 17th century, uh, 1795. So after the revocation. Yes, in Amsterdam. In Published Amsterdam. in Amsterdam. In French. In French. So for the refugee people that are in the in the Netherlands or in Amsterdam or how you know. No, for all the French, uh, the French-speaking reformed people, because I mean, right. So I don't know. I I would think 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 about it. Would would it be pastors uh, might be more likely to read it? Members of the of the uh, elder board, the elders might read it. The deacons might read it, or educated members of the congregation might be interested in something longer. Uh, yeah, and, and, and more detailed. That makes sense to me. But I'm just surmising. And people with a lot of time. I mean, <laughs> you need a lot of time to read 500 pages, more than 500 pages, to prepare. Uh, to the communion. So I think it's very, the, the public is very narrowing uh, mm -hmm. by the time. That, that was the hypothesis I was making in my dissertation. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. Uh, other questions, let me go down the page here and make sure I don't miss anybody. Other questions from colleagues for Matt Martin? This is a fascinating topic. Oh, Gregory, we've got a question. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, so I'm just finishing up um, uh, my own research at the Free University of Amsterdam and um, actually looking at the frequency of Lord's Supper, um, focusing on the Scottish and English and, and, the early, um, and the early Puritan heritage. And I did not get to the Huguenots. So this is something I don't know as much about, um, but very interested because you made that connection with uh, the English and the Scots and then uh, the early uh, revivals at uh, Cane Ridge. So in your reading, uh, do they talk about how often to have the Lord's Supper? And um, one of what my main takeaways is that in, in the Reformed tradition, there was so much emphasis on how to prepare that it was really impossible to have it as frequently as um, uh, many authors wanted it. So there's this tension between um, how to uh, be pure, how to prepare properly, but also wanting to have it more often. Uh, so do you see that tension in the sources? If you look at the discipline, um, the discipline actually says at a minimum quarterly, um, but they would like to do it more often, but typically it was quarterly. At Sharonton, it was quarterly. And then there was a the question of whether you could have it during the week, like Christmas day or the Sunday of Christmas week. They usually did it on the Sunday of Christmas week. They did it on Sundays. Uh, Easter, obviously they always had the Lord's Supper. 
but it's a separate service, just like in Geneva in the afternoon. And they did have the Mero, the token that you had to have to get in. Um, and, uh, you know, and they would have preparation weeks, one, two weeks, one or two weeks. I, I think some of the Reformed churches still do that, don't they? Uh, even today where they do preparatory sermons for the Lord's Supper. So that's a tradition that goes way back. Um, but they really, uh, what, what I found fascinating is my own Christian experience growing up was, I, would, I didn't even know when they were celebrating. I just go to church. Oh, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I just partake of it. Um, so this whole idea of preparing uh, is a little foreign to me, but the more I read it, the more I read about it, uh, the, the level of piety, that's what really strikes me, is that people, these services last a long time. The Eucharistic sermons are a couple hours long, sometimes almost three hours long. They're there all day, and when they have fast days, they do have fast days, they get there at eight in the morning, they leave at six at night. And they got to walk four miles back home, uh, and, and it might be it might be really cold, it might be really hot, and they love it. They just the comments that people make about their participation is is just uh, they love the sermon. But if you did a two hour sermon today, especially if you were in Wisconsin on a on a on a Packer Sunday. <laughs> I don't think anyone would stick around after 12 o'clock. So I thought that was real interesting that they, uh, they just really, they just love going to the Eucharistic services. All right, we have a question first from Randy Lackader and then we'll move around the room again. Randy. That's very interesting. In the <clears throat> Dutch reform tradition, there were, you know, always, there was a preparatory Sunday before the Sunday of communion. And I remember hearing about uh, if you went from what, if you were traveling, you had to bring an attestation from your consistory that said you, you were in a good state to take communion. That's in the discipline too. Right. The French discipline. So they, they have that. Does anyone know, I've been asking this question, is there an English translation of the French discipline? I don't know about that. I don't think there is. And, and my next question is, would that be helpful to publish, do you think, in English? What do you? Well, I'm my, just curious what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, it, the discipline evolved, but um, you know they have. There's an edition that I'm looking at in French that has all the the original and then all the changes over the years and where the changes were made. Would that be something that people would find helpful? It might be. I would say yes. I have I have an uh, I have an email under Ray Messer about that. But I think that might be. They might open up some avenues for some people because I could. I kept looking for a translation. I couldn't find it. Right, Randy, you had a question. Yeah, the question was, you you connected him with uh, Claude Pajon, right? Yeah, he was and, a pageantist. And he, and so I'm just wondering. I know the only thing I know about Pajon is that this unusual view of the Holy Spirit, right? For which he ultimately got lost a job. Um. And it almost seems like a very rationalistic view of the Holy Spirit. It is. And it yet, is. and yet this is a, a very pious spiritualist, you know, very spiritual experience. I'm just wondering how those fit together. Yeah, if you if well, you, if you I, I think that. his his view on the Holy Spirit seems to me to be unorthodox. Hmm. It's not surprising to me that he was suspected because if it's pure intellectual exercise, it can become a work. Mm -hmm. And that can lead to, that's why the accusations of Arminianism and Socinianism, which the Socinian tag, they just throw to anyone they don't like. <laughs> um, but Arminian, you know, his methodology is kind of Arminian. Oh. If you look at his, his book on apologetics, oh. his defense of the Christian faith, it's a very evidentialist based, like you see among many of the Arminians. I found that was very interesting. So the methodology seems to be Arminian. And, and he writes, uh, there's a series of letters that Alix writes to Louis Tronchin, who's a professor of theology 
at Geneva, who's there's a great book by Olivier Fascio. It, it's it's uh, he it, it calls Tronchin a transitionary figure in Calvinism, which he was between orthodoxy and enlightenment. But he writes, uh, Fascio writes in the book that after going through this correspondence, by the way, Karina, it's the one volume that you don't have uh, in the mm -hmm. Tronchin archives here is this particular one. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I was able to get, to get the gist of it by reading uh, uh, Fascio. But he, um, he says that Fascio was, that uh, uh, Tronchin was even shocked by some of the things that Alix was saying. So I, th I thought that was kind of interesting. So, but at the same time, he's very pious. And, and that goes along with a lot of these rationalistic, more rationalistic form of reform theologians that, that come at the end of the 17th and into the early 18th century. They're emphasizing practice. They don't want to get caught up in the subtleties of theological argument they're emphasizing practice. So in my mind, it makes perfect sense that he would be very pious. Okay. I think Don Cinema has a question. Yes, um, I'm wondering how were the elements actually distributed in the church at Sharingpo? Well, what they would do is they had a communion table. There's a consistory building behind the church. The church is huge. It seats four to 6,000. Um, they would just only bring in the communion table on communion Sundays. And then they would, people would come down, the men and the women were separated. They would come down two at a time uh, and they would surround the table and the pastor would break off a piece of bread and hand it to them and they would all partake and then they would drink. And so it took a long time because if you have, let's say you had 4,000 people and let's say 20 people can surround the communion table at a time. I mean, just do the math. That could be like sitting through a graduation mm -hmm. uh, at some of these large universities, which seem to go on forever. And they, but they, mm -hmm. They loved it. They loved it. And I think, Bill, you had another question. Go ahead. Um, in Christian's book, there is a, an engraving with a French title showing people seated at benches at the, long, at the long table. My impression is that that went on in a few places, and it went on in the Walloon churches in the Netherlands but that more often in France and in La Suisse, French Switzerland, um, it was standing at the table, approaching the table and standing. But the reference to quarterly communion and communion four times a year are not quite the same thing. Um, it's always at or around Christmas mm -hmm. Easter, and Pentecost. Right. Uh, yep. not John Knox says four times a year, but make sure you do it on a day that could not anyway be construed as a popish holy day. Mm -hmm. That's how the, that's how the French uh, conceived of it, exactly the way you just said. And what I find interesting is my Amish neighbors still keep Good Friday as communion preparation day. Mm -hmm. Easter is communion, but this is where when you've had a week of communion preparatory services, you need that Easter Monday, the day after Christmas and Whit Monday as a kind of letting off the steam. Mm -hmm. I finished translating Donkbar's little booklet on communion usages of the Reformation. And he brings in how often the early Dutch synods recommended Christmas and Pentecost communions. That seems to have sort of faded the, that use. But, uh, you know, the rules for what you wore, what you did up to the end of the communion, okay? And then the next day, you could kind of let your hair out and celebrate spring in uh, Easter in Easter Monday or Whit Monday. So it, it turned into a whole week plus the day. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's very, it's interesting. It was a big deal, no question about it. Let's see, Jeff, go ahead. Uh, I was curious about that uh, prayer 
that you uh, you read at the, at the end. That was a pretty long prayer, uh, and I assume they're not really expecting many people to memorize that. Is is it mm-hmm. sort of to give them an idea of what type of prayer you say, or or would somebody actually be expected to take the book in with them and perhaps read? I was thinking the same thing. How are you going to remember this prayer? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really long. Yeah. Um, maybe, Bill, do you have an answer to that? Yeah, I do. I do book binding. And the size of some of these sweet little octavos with tortoise shell and on chains, you really get the feeling that some of these ladies carried their psalters. Oh, they and did. Community into church instead of a purse hanging their their what with their keys and so it's quite conceivable as a fashion accessory that you open and and and, and uh, go to the page and the Drillencourt editions that i've seen also have separate prayers for the communions at christmas easter and pentecost interesting plus you're you're standing in line right <laughs> for a long time to get to the table so i i would think you would have time to pray those yeah Absolutely. Actually, that the uh, another thing I was the 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 words that most struck me from that prayer was "May I renounce uh, the world and uh, all its vanities." And uh, just by chance, this morning I was reading this article by Susan Carrot Nunn, um, uh, titled "Being John Calvin's Sexuality." That may sound like an oxymoron, but based uh, on his uh, reading of his sermons and. Um, you know, she uh, makes a very good case about, you know, uh, you know Calvin was severely ascetic and, uh, you know, sort of with references to, um, uh, to Weber, she sort of thinks Weber got it wrong. And if you'll bear with me, the last, uh, let me read the last two sentences, three sentences of this article. Um, I would go so far to say that in Calvinist Geneva and well beyond, a specific personality makes its mark on the reformed variety of Protestantism at least during the reformer's own lifetime. The ideals that Calvin most cherishes uh, do not mark a radical departure from those of high and late medieval monasticism, especially of the Cistercian movement. This comparison would appall John Calvin. Uh, Mm -hmm. No doubt uh, uh, she's right there, that would appall, but uh, Calvin, but the the intramundane asceticism, well, doesn't Calvin, uh, don't the consistory, they have people that wear velvet in Geneva, that that's a oh. real problem? Yeah, yeah, you get in trouble for, the, they had these fancy breeches that uh, that uh, men would wear and they'd get in trouble and they'd, they'd be told, you're not allowed to wear those breeches, but I paid so much money for them. No, you cannot wear them. Yeah, that was, <laughs> was definitely frowned upon. It's, it's all so interesting. But Are I, there I, any, go ahead. Go ahead. It seems like some of these traditions still carry on today, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating. Any other I, questions? I don't wear velvet pants, by the way, just for the record. <laughs> any other questions from any of our participants? Yes, Gregory. Follow up a little bit. Um, so in the other um, uh, texts um, uh, from England and, and Scotland, uh, they also tend to be very long. Uh, so just following up on um, on Professor uh, Gross's question, it, it seems like there might also be a, a social uh, class uh, aspect of this where those who could read uh, or those who could afford these books or those who could attain this level of, of, of reformed spirituality. So, uh, uh, so have you seen anything about how uh, the normal uh, servants or people that could not read how uh, what were the, what were they expected to do? Well, well, well at the family devotions, the, the father would read to them. So even though they couldn't read, they could understand uh, the readings that were said to them. So I, I would assume that maybe some of these devotional works uh, could be read in in family devotions at home as part of the instruction. 
And the other thing is that during the services themselves, it's not silent. There is There are readings being done from the pulpit during the communion service. And usually it's a reading of the Last Supper. And now if it's really, really long service, do they start over and start in the beginning again when they get partway through? I don't know, because even a slow reading of the Last Supper, if you have to push 4,000 people through, is going to take a very, very long time. Uh, but they do have readings from the pulpit from scripture while the communion service is going on. So even the non-literate are hearing the word of God reflecting on what's going on in the, the in actual in the sacrament. All right. Well, listen, this has been great. I'm so glad everybody could be here for this. It's a lovely discussion. And uh, Martin, thank you so much you for your research and your presentation. This is terrific. And uh, we are looking forward to holding more of these kinds of sessions in the fall around different themes of the Reformation and maybe see each other live at the conference like the 16th Century Studies Conference, which would be exciting too. So in the meantime, enjoy your afternoon and thanks again, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Corinne. Thanks, Marty. All, All right. right. Nice to see Bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.